you're listening to a Two Jackets podcast. Check out more at twojackets.com. And now, the dramatic conclusion to Sham Fiction, Just the Fix, Volume 4. This is Part 2. Enjoy. From Episode 46, Eric writes Accounting VR, based on the HTC Vive game by William Pugh and Justin Roiland. This is Accounting VR, a choose-your-own-adventure by Eric Carlson. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yes! Why aren't you playing my bones? The right skull screams as you pick up the jar of acid, noting the indefinite absence of weight in your hand as you do so. Don't play with that jar of acid, play with my bones, the left skull begs, adding, You are the best at playing my bones. Totally the best at playing my bones, agrees the right skull, bobbing up and down in enthusiastic consensus. Now drop the jar and play my fucking bones! <laughs> the left skull immediately jumps in with, uh, but, but don't drop it here, you might hurt my bones. Drop it over there instead. Then play my motherfucking bones! <laughs> Righty adds. You turn in the indicated direction and notice a large, helpful-looking arrow pointing to an empty spot on the floor directly behind you, apparently suggesting a good place on which to drop the jar of acid. Oh, yeah, that's the spot, the left skull croons, <laughs> confirming, your hypo- hy- confirming your hypothesis on the utility of the arrow. Now drop that shit so you can play my bones. Let's chit-chat more playing my bones, says the right skull fervently. You hesitate, then turn back towards the bone xylophone, both skulls screaming in frustration as you do so. You're still not playing my bones, you dumb meat sack! The right skull yells. Don't splash my bones, the other shouts. Who knows what creature might appear if you melt my bones? (laughs) This is indeed a tricky decision for you. The first of many, you're sure. If you'd like to drop the jar of acid on the floor, turn to page two. If you'd like to pour the acid all over the fucking bones, turn to page three. I look at you expectantly. You seem caught off guard. Which is strange, because you knew this was a choose-your-own-adventure when we started. So come on, Andrew. Make a decision already. Well, obviously three. (laughs) You turn the jar over and pour the bright green acid out over the xylophone made of bones. Smoke begins to rise into the air, clouding your vision, and the skulls begin screaming. Ah! What? Says the right skull. What the fuck are you doing, man? Those are my fucking bones! The left skull says, This is not what I meant when I said play my bones. My bones are dissolving away, not being played. You are the worst at playing my bones in the history of playing my bones. I've never known pain until this very moment. My world is an unending sea of the deepest agony. But this is like so much pain that like, if I were like run over by a truck and then like dropped into like a serious like lake filled with piranhas, it would be like nothing compared to this because this is the worst pain I could possibly imagine. I'm dying. (laughs) After a few moments of this, there is nothing left of the bones or the skulls. The smoke dissipates, and there's just a pile of white mush on the floor as blessed silence fills the empty room. (laughs) Then, surprisingly, even to your jaded mind, the mush begins to move, and you instinctively crouch to get a closer look at what's happening to the pile of malleable putty that was once a (laughs) sentient xylophone made of human bones. 
As if by an invisible finger, words begin to form in the mush, drawn out one letter at a time in a large, clear script. After a few seconds, a message lies before you. It says, To escape, mold me into a key. <laughs> you reach out a tentative pointer and prod the mush. It gives way to your touch. So you reach out with both hands and begin forming a ball out of the wet bone stuff. You work frantically, <laughs> packing the material like clay until you've created an almost tangible object. With dismay, you realize that you've made, not a key, but the only thing that makes sense to your shattered brain at this point. Another goddamn VR headset. <laughs> if you'd like to put on the VR headset, turn to page four. If you'd like to create something else, turn to page five. We gotta go to page four! Another layer deeper! It's like your favorite movie, Inception. <laughs> you place the headset over your eyes and are shocked to find that you are still in the same room, save for one very important difference. Standing above the pile of mush where there was once empty space, you find a strange creature. Its body seems to be mostly round, if a bit lumpy, with a grumpy-looking face and large bloodshot eyes and a downturned mouth. Instead of legs, on either side of its orb-like body sprout long, bony arms that terminate in massive hands, the fingers of which stretch out for a length that seems borderline unnecessary. <laughs> the monster glares at you for a long moment before reaching out with one massive hand, balancing its weight on the other, and wipes the bone mush into a smooth, consistent white surface. It then begins to write. That's not a key, dummy, it says. <laughs> Experimentally, you remove the Bone Mush VR headset for a moment to see that the message is still in fact written in the mush, though there is no monster to be seen. Putting the headset back on your head, the virtual monster is there once again. The monster is once again revealed to you. The introduction of augmented reality to your virtual 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 <laughs> reality makes your head spin for a moment. The handsy beast wipes his words away and begins scrawling again with an obscenely long finger. It says... I can't help you unless you make me a key. Do I look like a guy with a key? <laughs> then the monster turns around and shows you its backside, which, to your chagrin, contains a small and unmistakably key-shaped hole right where you might expect its butthole to be. You begin to question what you're doing in this place. If you'd like to make the monster a key to put in its butt, turn to page 7. If you'd like to take off your Bone Mush AR headset and pretend this thing isn't in the room with you, turn to page 8. If you'd like to make a sword out of Bone Mush and use it to kill this creepy bastard, turn to page 9. Page 9, duh. <laughs> in a fit of frustration and mild nausea, you gather up as much of the Bone Mush as you can and begin forming it into the rough shape of a sword. You've never actually held a real sword before, but you've played enough Skyrim to know the general idea of how swords work. <laughs> After a few moments, you're holding a lumpy white blade with a jaunty little pommel. It's no Skyforged steel, but it'll have to do. The monster is still standing there patiently, looking the other way, its keyhole aimed in your direction. It clearly has no idea that you've been crafting the object of its destruction out of bone mush these last few minutes. You idly wonder if you'll get any sneak bonuses for your attack as you lift it high over your head. You swing down as hard as you can, and the creature is immediately splattered with a bunch of bone mush, failing to sustain any damage whatsoever because what else did you expect to happen when you attack a monster with a sword made out of goddamn bone mush? <laughs> the creature turns back to look at you with its dumb grumpy face, then silently turns back around, taunting you to do what you know must be done.
turn to page seven. Grudgingly, you reach out and grab some more bone mush <laughs> off the floor and mold it into the shape of an old-timey key. You're not very sure of yourself as you raise your creation and begin inching it toward the hand monster's waiting keyhole. As you approach, the monster's fingers start to drum on the floor excitedly. To your surprise, <laughs> your bone mush key fits right in the hole, and the monster makes a noise you wish it didn't. <laughs> you turn the key, which clicks with a satisfying electronic sound, like turning on an old television somewhere deep inside the creature. You immediately hear some very familiar voices. I say, are we in yet? Says Smith. I can't see a bloody thing, replies Smitherson. <laughs> Oi, turn around then, says the first. On cue, the hand beast, now with a bone mush key protruding from its backside, turns around to reveal an intercom speaker lodged in its grumpy but now open mouth. Oh, there you are, says Smith enthusiastically through the tinny speaker. It's our favorite accountant, stuck inside the virtual heart of the King of VR, says Smitherson, <laughs> also via speaker. The King of VR whom he brutally murdered, finished Smith. The hand creature just continues to stare at you with its huge bloodshot eyes, a look incongruous with the electronic voices emanating from its mouth. Smitherson speaks again, saying, I can tell by that vapid expression on your face that you don't know who our handsy little friend is, hey? Well, I'll tell you. This here is the ghost of VR's past. <laughs> Bored in the space between virtual realities, you know, Smith adds. Quite. You called him into your reality by playing the bones. Chap loves the sound of bones. Who doesn't? Anywho, you've got some accounting to do, so you better find that software. Someone lost the real cartridge somewhere in virtual reality, don't you know? But lucky you found the ghost of VR's past. Bastard can peer behind the curtain, as they say. Punch a hole through the curtain to be more precise. So that's it then. Point where you want Hansy to punch, and he'll punch. And don't forget to find that cartridge, what what. <laughs> you look around the room and realize that everywhere you point with your finger, a bright red crosshairs appears. You point to the far wall, and the crosshairs appears on the wall. You point to the pile of mush on the floor, and the crosshairs appears there. If you'd like, to, if you'd like the ghost of VR's past to punch the wall, turn to page 10. If you'd like the ghost of VR's past to punch the pile of bone mush, turn to page 11. If you'd like the ghost of VR's past to punch his own face, turn to page 12. Obviously, he needs to punch his own face. <laughs> you point to the ghost of VR's past face, delighted that the crosshairs do in fact appear on the thing's speaker mouth as you do so. I don't know if you appreciate the purpose of this exercise, Smitherson begins. But before another word is spoken, the ghost of VR's past's hilariously oversized fist makes brutal contact with its own dumb face. There is a large puff of smoke as electric sparks explode from the creature's mouth, revealing a gleaming golden computer software cartridge lodged between the ghost of VR's past's grumpy lips. You've done it! You've found the real accounting software! And as a bonus, the loudspeaker is gone, so you can no longer be harassed by Smith and Smitherson. You tentatively reach into the ghost of VR's past's mouth and remove the cartridge. It glares at you grumpily, but compliantly as you do so. Now all you need is a virtual reality deck so you can pop this puppy in and live out your accounting fantasies. <laughs> Unfortunately, the only deck you've encountered is three levels of VR and one level of AR behind you where you began. You feel a sense of hopeless doubt for a moment, 
but soon remember that you are standing in the company of a monster who has the miraculous ability to break down the nature of virtual reality in all directions. You also notice that there is still quite a bit of bone mush lying on the floor, which has thus far yielded surprisingly good results when molded into various implements. If you'd like the ghost of VR's past to punch a hole in the pile of bone mush, turn to page 15. If you'd like to try molding a cartridge deck out of bone mush, turn to page 16. Let's try the bone mush. 15. <laughs> You're both bone mush. <laughs> you point to the pile of bone mush on the floor, and the ghost of VR's past immediately raises a gi gigantic fist and slams it down into the pile. The floor itself shatters like glass, betraying its solid stone appearance. And although you cannot feel the sensation of falling, you are thrust downward into the abyss that opens at your feet. The shattered fragments of your previous reality, as well as a surprising amount of warm blood, rain down around you as you fall. Bright green leaves are now rushing past, and after a moment, you land softly on a very familiar patch of forest floor. Oh! What? There's like two of you now? A voice says to your left. You spin towards the sound and notice two things. One... You're in tree world again, and the angry tree blob knows it. <laughs> two, there are indeed two of you, but the other you is wearing a wooden VR headset with a large battery protruding from it. He stands a foot to your left, but when you turn to look at him, he mimics the motion and remains slightly obscured to your vision. You slide to the left, and he does the same. You slide to the right, and he does the same. Two hops this time. <laughs> Jesus fuck This isn't invite your friends over to my tree world world This is my fucking tree world <laughs> You become dizzy for a moment You've finally begun to understand the term Out of body experience You ignore the frantic shouts of the tree blob As you become obsessed with staring at your own double Who is, in fact, you it's not a copy, it's you. Two levels of VR shallower than you, but still, it's you. This is you, but it could perhaps be said that it is a realer version of you. A you closer <laughs> to reality. You shake your head to clear your fuzzy vision, and your double does the same. Or did the other you shake his head, and you followed suit? Is he controlling you? What is the meaning of control? What is the meaning of identity? How can one define oneself if one is two? Double-stepping turkeys! The blob is still shouting. I made this world so I could escape from piss-shit-duty garbage like this! Now make like a tree and the fuck out my tree world! <laughs> You ponder how you might even go about getting the fuck out of his tree world. You've compounded your virtual reality so much at this point, you're kind of afraid to do anything. If you took your headset off, would the other you also take his headset off? If he slash you takes his slash your tree headset off, would your current di reality disappear? Would you cease to exist? It's at times like this that you wish you knew a friendly creature born in the spaces between virtual realities to help you. Oh, that's right, you do. <laughs> you spin in place. The other you does the same. And are only slightly taken aback when you see that the ghost of VR's past is standing mere inches behind you. It glares at you with those big, dumb bloodshot eyes and frowns at you with that big, dumb, grumpy mouth. Yet in this moment, it seems to speak to you. Except in reality, it's the tree monster speaking to you. Get out of my fucking tree world! <laughs> it says. The crosshairs appear in front of you again. You know what needs to be done. 
If you'd like the ghost of VR's past to punch the angry tree blob in the face, <laughs> turn to page 17. If you'd like the ghost of VR's past to punch the other you in the face, turn to page 21. Gosh, I'm so scared now. <laughs> uh, so much pressure. Uh, you gotta, you gotta punch the tree blob. The ghost of VR's past saunters over to the angry tree blob, who doesn't even seem to notice the hand beast's presence, and instead continues to yell at you with, "Get fucking the fuck out of my fucking tree fucking world!" and punches it square in the face. Fuck! It shouts, understandably. And although you expect the blob to disappear from existence or something, perhaps to be replaced by another thing from an adjacent reality, the angry tree monster just seems to deflate a bit, its angry eyes turning into sad, pathetic eyes. It begins to weep at you, and you feel uncomfortable by it. Oh, god damn it! I just wanted my own tree world! I never wanted to be an accountant, but my harsh fucking upbringing, you know... (laughs) The blob is straight up sobbing now, and you begin backing away from it, having learned from a young age to distrust unpredictable emotions. I flunked out of accounting school, did you know that? It asks. You don't care. It keeps talking despite your apathy. But then VR came around and bam, the power of accounting gods at your fingertips. It's like you can take some numbers over on this side and combine it with numbers over here in like a virtual space and holy shit, you're accounting. And it's like, <laughs> how did anybody live before this? It's like even me who flunked out of, out of accounting school like a dumb shit, you know? Like the worthless <laughs> piece of crap I am. Like even I can be an accountant, it's fine. So hey, why don't you go work for Smith & Smitherson? And it'll be like a really fantastic. You don't even need to know how to do accounting because for fuck's sake, it's all right here. It's like it does it for you. It's, it's magic powers of the accounting gods at your fingertips. And I just couldn't handle it. It was too much pressure and so I I came here, I made this place, and I put all my sad feelings in that box over there, and I powered it with a battery made of squandered potential energy. And then, and then you stole it. And then you punched me in the face with your mind. And, and, And don't make me go back to the accounting world. Let me have my tree world. The blob is straight up ugly crying. You look to your right at the ghost of VR's past, then to your left at your second level virtual forebear slash twin. He doesn't make eye contact with you because he's also looking to his left. Plus he's got that headset on with that big dumb battery sticking out of it, which you suppose is powered by squandered potential. You can't help but wonder at what would happen if it got punched. If you'd like the ghost of VR's past to punch the other you in the face, turn to page 18. If you'd like to stay here and talk to the weepy-ass tree blob some more, turn to page 20. I know it's me. Oh, gosh. Let's keep talking to the tree blob. (laughs) You take a step towards the tree blob and reach out a tentative hand patting it gently on the head as if to say, there, there, your emotions aren't like a spinning ball of razor blades loosely tied together with thread that is also on fire. I can definitely fathom the depths of your feelscape. And it immediately launches into another sob story. And then when I was 
was 10. Like, I went to the mall with my mom and dad, but they left me at the sporting goods store. But there are like three sporting goods stores at this mall, so they thought they left me at another one. And even though they said they came right back, it doesn't really do any good if you go back to the wrong sporting goods store, mom. You're emotionally exhausted now. And if anything, the blob seems sadder now than before. <laughs> it really makes you want to punch yourself in the face. If you'd like the ghost of VR's past to punch the other you in the face, which you do, turn to page 21. <laughs> okay, page 21. You try to point the crosshairs at the other user's face, but the simple act of looking in his direction is causing him to also look that same direction, thus making his face untargetable. You get around this by carefully aiming at the back of his slash your head with your left hand, then pivot your head as far as possible in the direction you, other direction you can before making your selection. To your utter joy and childish amusement, you watch as the ghost of VR's past hand walks past you, sets itself right in front of the other you, pulls its giant fist back, then you begin to question the validity of decisions made by your brain when it's been so thoroughly abused today. But there's no time, and you get punched, punched in the fucking face instead. <laughs> but it's VR, so you don't feel it, so I guess it's a wash. <laughs> what you realize, however, after you've opened your eyes that you'd squeeze shut tight right before the blow landed like a little coward, is that you're no longer standing in Tree World. No, instead... You're right back where you started. You look to your left. Filing cabinets. You look to your right. Filing cabinets and a fake plant. You look behind you. Grumpy ass hand monster ghost of VR's past leering at you like he just fucking does. <laughs> Wait, you think to yourself. If the ghost of VR's past is visible to you, then you're still in augmented reality, which is a state of reality that only exists in virtual, 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 virtual reality. This means somehow you've punched down through a compounded loop of virtual reality time space and have ended up back in the first level of VR, but with all the powers of the nested realities, included the augmented one that you'd picked up along the way. You suddenly feel like the master of this place, as if everything has finally started to make sense. You produce the real accounting software cartridge, and bring it over to your desk. You remove the false VR software that was in the slot, feel a sudden wave of reality-bending nausea associated with casually negating the implement that is the linchpin of your entire Russian nesting doll of virtual reality without any tangible consequences, and insert the golden cartridge. You hold your breath. A moment passes. Then another. Then just as you're about to start breathing again, your vision goes dark and you gasp instinctually. You move your head in all directions and flail your arms helpfully, but you can't see a thing. What have you done? Wait, hold on, some words are appearing on screen. Virtual Accountant V1.3 Initializing Holy shit, it worked. <laughs> In a flash, the words disappear and your world becomes an endless series of columns, rows, numbers, equations, sums, and figures engulfing you in an endless sphere of mathematical bliss. And what's this? At the center of the room? Is that... a speakerphone? Fuck me, eh? I guess you did it! <laughs> the tinny voice of Smith enthuses. Now the exciting world of accounting is at your fingertips! You're a god in this world! Smitherson continues. 
Which is good because Smith and Smitherson is in some dire goddamn financial straits and it's going to take a miracle to sort out. Yep, but you've proven yourself to be resourceful and cunning and all that, so yay us! Have fun, and don't try to think about how you're now operating a piece of software that only exists in an augmented reality trapped within five levels of virtual reality, righto? Cheers! Nighty night! <laughs> Enjoy yourself! There is a click, and the voices disappear, and you're left alone with the accounting and a naggingly loose hold on your own concept of reality. If you'd like to stop playing accounting VR now, the end. <laughs> From episode 47, Andrew writes The Girl with All the Gifts, based on the novel by M. Carey. Melanie was hungry, and it scared her. She'd been trying to ignore it, but when she felt a particularly wretched twist and rumbling in her tummy, she told Miss Justino. Melanie saw her teacher's forehead wrinkle and her eyes moisten, which Melanie recognized as signs of fear, but then a hint of a smile appeared on the woman's lips, which lifted Melanie's spirits so slightly. Thank you for telling me, dear, Miss Justino said. You tell me if it gets any worse, okay? Melanie nodded, and Miss Justino walked ahead to talk to Sergeant Parks, who led them down the, des down the deserted lane. She watched as her teacher and the sergeant conversed in hush hushed voices about ten steps ahead. Sergeant Parks glanced back at her quickly. Melanie didn't catch his expression, but she figured it'd be a dark one. He was a serious fellow. The two adults stopped walking, so Melanie did too. The sergeant gestured to, Mr. to Dr. Caldwell to come forward. The doctor had been walking a few paces behind Melanie, and she studied Melanie with a frown as she passed. She always did that, and it always made Melanie feel cold. Melanie didn't follow the doctor. She knew she wasn't welcome in the adults' huddles. She watched them for a moment, unable to make out what they were saying, but entirely aware of what they were thinking by what she saw. Miss Justino's arms crossed tightly before her. The doctor's shoulders slumped and head down. The sergeant's hands gripped on his rifle, all stealing short glances in her direction. They remember Gallagher's screams, too, she thought. She felt tears begin to well in her eyes. <laughs> she wiped them away and decided to look around to distract herself from the adults and the naughty feeling in her belly. They were in North London now in a beautiful neighborhood. Tightly packed homes lined both, lines of the, both sides of the street, each sharing walls with its neighbors to the left and right. Their exterior brick walls were a patchwork of natural shades of red and brown. She imagined their insides, a narrow stair and hallway near the entrance, a cozy parlor in the front, a kitchen near the back with a window overlooking the garden, just like in the picture books Miss Justino used to read to her in her class. She wanted to go inside one to see if she was right about how it looked. Maybe we'll sleep in one tonight, she thought. But a smell pulled her attention away. It was light but it brought back the rumble in her tummy, and her mouth grew wet. Her mind suddenly prickled with excitement, but she pushed it away and allowed her sadness to fill its place. It felt worse, but she knew where the better feeling would lead. She turned to the adults still in their huddle. Your beta blocker is wearing off, she said. Their hushed conversation ceased, and all three turned to her. What's that now, dear? 
Miss Justino asked. The beta blocker is wearing off, Melanie repeated. I can smell you. Sergeant Parks broke off from the group to hunt along the railway nearby, while Dr. Caldwell, Miss Justino, and Melanie searched a few small shops around the neighborhood for food. The area was quiet, but they still moved cautiously from place to place. The shops they visited had been sacked long ago, but a fair amount of merchandise remained, both on the shelves and on the floor. Crisps, biscuits, sweets... (laughs) Melanie loved their colorful packaging. She held up a small red bag of a candy called Skittles to Dr. Caldwell. The woman shook her head. That's junk, she said. You need protein. Something with meat or nuts, like I said earlier. They didn't find anything like that. Before leaving the third shop, Melanie caught Miss Justino's sign as she looked into an icebox. Melanie approached her teacher and stopped by her side. Although the woman had reapplied the beta blocker, Melanie caught the slightest whiff of her scent. What's the matter? Melanie asked, trying to take her attention off the scent. Oh, nothing, Miss Justino replied. Melanie peered inside the icebox at a bunch of blue cone-shaped packages on moldy shelves. (laughs) What are they? Melanie asked, turning to the woman. Miss Justino smiled. Cornetto, she said. Before Melanie could ask what that meant, she heard Dr. Caldwell's voice. Parks is back. And he wasn't alone. Outside the shop on the lane, Sergeant Parks introduced the man with him as Peg. He was an elderly man with a stocky build, shaggy gray hair, and a beard to match. He wore a brown leather jacket with patches on the arms, some simple color bars, others depicting stars, crowns, and the Union Jack. When Peg saw Melanie, he gasped. Well, I'll be, he said, smiling. Melanie was immediately disarmed by his smile. It took up his whole face, emphasized by his round, reddened cheeks and the deep wrinkles around his eyes. Melanie saw genuine happiness on that, in that smile. He reminded her of Father Christmas whom she'd seen in books and on greeting cards Miss Justino had given her in the past. Sergeant Parks began to explain how he and Peg encountered each other, but the man's words fell away from Melanie's ears. She could only focus on the new scent in the air. She inhaled it deeply through her nostrils, and it seemed to fill her head with warm bubbles. Her (laughs) eyelids fluttered, and when she was able to refocus, she looked back at Peg. The older man was beckoning to her, still smiling, inviting her closer. "'I have something for you, my dear,' he said, crouching down. His voice seemed muted, as if she heard it through a wall. All sound around her was dropping away, the warm bubbles filling her ears. "'This man is so cheery and welcoming,' she thought. "'He wants me to have him, doesn't he? "'Why else would he be waving me over? "'Why else did he look at me the way he did?' Step by step, Melanie approached the old man. The air between them thickened, and Melanie felt the skin moisten on her face and neck. She watched as Peg reached into his inside jacket pocket, which raised the hair on her arms. Is he going for a weapon? No, he can't be. That smile. Still, it won't hurt to pick up the pace. 
She pushed harder through the ever-thickening air, only a few more steps. Then Peg removed his hand from his pocket. Melanie halted. The man now held a clear plastic bag filled with jerky. Melanie glanced from the bag of meat to the older man's face. She could make out his eye color now. Blue. Just like Private Gallagher's, she thought. Hmm. She felt a cool breeze across her face and heard it rustle through the tree branches above. She shot a hand out and snatched the bag from Peg's grasp. The older man just laughed. Whoa, he said. We really are hungry now, aren't we? Peg led Melanie and her companions to a safe house of his, one of a handful, he said. It was only a few blocks from the shops where they had been, a red brick house on a corner near the, near the railway. On the way over, Melanie walked by Miss Justino's side as Peg led them. Dr. Caldwell and Sergeant Parks brought up the rear, walking just out of earshot for Melanie. She looked back at them a few times. They had been whispering and looking ahead at Peg. She'd often seen them whispering like that, planning their next move. She hoped they didn't intend to hurt Peg. He truly seemed like a kind man. The inside of Peg's house was just as she imagined. The narrow hallway, the stairs, the parlor, the kitchen. But it was dark. The old man had boarded up all the windows. Only thin, horizontal beams of light cut between the boards across the parlor window, catching the dust particles flowing in the air. She pointed this out to Miss Justino. She found it beautiful. She walked a few laps around the first floor, taking in the details of each room. Floral wallpaper, an antique china cabinet, framed family photos. The family in the pictures was young, a mother, a father, and a girl around her age. Perhaps this house didn't belong to Peg before the Hungries came, she thought. But then she saw him. He was in a photo standing with one arm around the mother and the other holding the little girl, beaming his warm smile. His beard hadn't been so unruly back then. Melanie came to a stop on a couch with tufted cushions in the parlor. Now seated, Melanie felt soreness in her feet and legs. They'd been walking for so long. Peg entered, and she perked up, catching his scent. She was suddenly aware of her stomach again, which rumbled. The jerky hadn't been sitting well with her. No food like that ever did. It only abated the bubbles. Hmm. Peg rested the rifle he'd been carrying against the wall and collapsed into an armchair across from Melanie. Miss Justino stood nearby, leaning against the arch between the entryway and the parlor, watching both Melanie and Peg closely. The old bearded man let out a deep sigh and patted his thighs a few times. The sergeant and doctor are performing a quick, quick sweep of the block, he said. They'll be back in a minute. Melanie knew this meant that those two wanted more time to conspire alone. From the look she saw on Miss Justino's face, she could tell her teacher was thinking the same. So that gives us more time to get to know each other, Peg said, gesturing between himself and Melanie. When the sergeant mentioned you, I think my heart skipped a beat. I hadn't seen a girl your age in years. Or much of anyone, for that matter. He chuckled. Melanie was focusing on the man's face and eyes and trying to ignore his scent. She thought of him and the girl in the photographs. And remembering that he was a person just like Miss Justino. Or Private Gallagher, she thought. Goosebumps formed on her arms. 
Tell me something about yourself, Peg said to her. Melanie looked to Miss Justino, who nodded. She turned back to Peg. What would you like to know? She asked. Anything, he said, spreading his arms widely. Anything you'd like to share. I I like Greek mythology, Melanie <laughs> said with a shrug, naming the first thing that came to mind. Peg cocked his head and nodded, impressed. My, my, he said. Now that's fast. that sounds fascinating. I'll admit, I don't know much about it. Though I think my beard could give old Zeus for a run for his money. He <laughs> laughed, and Melanie smiled. Now look at that, Peg said as he pointed at Melanie. There's a smile, and a lovely one at that. Right, Miss Justino? Absolutely right, Mr. Peg, Melanie's teacher replied, a soft smile of her own curling on her lips. Melanie felt her face grow hot in embarrassment. So tell me one of those myths, Peg said. I'd love to hear one. Melanie thought for a moment. Do you know the story of how Athena was born? She asked. Not in the slightest, the old man <laughs> replied. Enlighten me. Okay, Melanie said, excited to have an interested listener. She took a moment to sort out the details in her head, and then began. So, Zeus liked this goddess named Matisse. She was the daughter of two titans, the gods whom Zeus defeated to rule Olympus. Sounds like she wouldn't like him very much, Peg said. No, she didn't much at first, Melanie said. But she became his first wife. What a charmer, Peg inserted, shaking his head. Melanie giggled a bit before continuing. So, Zeus learned of a prophecy. It said that Metis would bear two of his children, and that the second one would be much more powerful than Zeus. So powerful that the child would overthrow him. Uh-oh, trouble in paradise. <laughs> yeah, that worried Zeus. So he tricked Metis into turning herself into a fly, and he swallowed her. Wait a tick. Peg jumped in, leaning forward. She turned into a fly, and then he ate her? Melanie grinned and nodded. She liked how excited her story seemed to make the man. Miss Justino, a voice came from outside. <laughs> it was Dr. Caldwell. Miss Justino went to the window and peered through a thin gap between the two boards. Yes, she called back. Would you please come outside for a moment? Miss Justino looked back at Melanie and then to Peg. Go ahead, miss, he said. I'll look after her. Miss Justino turned to Melanie. Will you be all right? Melanie nodded, smiling at her teacher. She was so anxious to continue her story. Miss Justino nodded and exited through the front door. So this Metis could just turn into a fly? Peg asked. She could change into anything, really, Melanie replied. Then why a fly of all things? Because Zeus tricked her into doing it. Huh, Peg said. God though he was, that man was a silver-tongued devil. <laughs> Peg started laughing and slapped his knee. Melanie began to laugh too, but more so at Peg than at what he said. She liked the way he bounced in his chair as he laughed. Just as he smiled with his whole face, Peg laughed with his whole body. But then her nose began to prickle. Melanie suddenly realized how strong the scent was in the room. It washed over her like a warm breeze, comforting her. 
Her mouth grew wet. Bubbles filled her head. She felt her neck grow weak, and her head rolled around, trying to right itself. She didn't feel dizzy, though, just relaxed, as if her body were floating in the thick, sweet-smelling air. She felt a hand on her knee. She looked at it, and then to the face of its owner. An old man. What was his name? He spoke, but the words couldn't penetrate her ears with the bubbles filling them. He was right there in front of her, looking at her with a wrinkled brow, touching her. She suddenly realized that he was all alone with her. He should know not to do that, right? Why would he be here alone? Why would he be touching me? Why else? The reason became suddenly clear. Melanie knew what the man wanted. He had her by the shoulders now. A bit of his voice came through. Stay with me, dearie, he said. Stay with me. What happened next in your story? What happened to the fly? Melanie looked into the man's eyes. They were blue. They reminded her of someone else. A young man. She'd forgotten his name. She gouged her thumbs into them. The old man screamed. She pushed his head back until it hit the floor with a thud. The man groaned. She bit off his nose and chewed it a few times before swallowing. She felt it in her chest as it slid slowly down into her belly. The man screamed again, frantically wiping the blood out of his eyes to little effect. She pulled his hands aside and took a bite out of one of his plump red cheeks, tearing the bottom eyelid out with it. She took the other cheek next. The man continued to scream when he wasn't choking on his own blood. She swallowed the second cheek and bent back down, taking a deep bite out of the center of his throat. The man wheezed at first, and then gargled as the blood filled his open neck. Crimson bubbles formed and popped as his chest moved up and down and up and down. Then Melanie took a bite from the side of his neck, and her vision went red. She felt the man's chest relax. He was peaceful he was peaceful now. And so was she. When Melanie opened the front door of the house, the lane was covered in the purple shadows of dusk. The sun was down over the rooftops across the street. She stood in the doorway and let the cool breeze blow over her moist skin for a few seconds. Sergeant Parks and Dr. Caldwell were standing at the end of the short walk where it met the pavement. The sergeant had his rifle aimed at her, the doctor her handgun. Then Miss Justino appeared, standing up from behind the short wall that separated the pavement from the small garden in front of the house. Her teacher's face was bruised, and her eyes wet with tears. Upon seeing Melanie, she stifled a gasp and started toward her. Dr. Caldwell grabbed her arm and she froze. Melanie, she said, are you okay? Melanie nodded. We'll get you washed up, my dear, Miss Justino said. I promise, soon. Melanie looked down at the red stains that covered her. I forgot their names, Melanie said softly. What's that, dear? Miss Justino asked. What were their names? Melanie asked. I forgot them. She watched blood drip from her hands onto the walk below. Tears followed.
The end. From episode 48, Marcus Wright's Lost at Sea, based on the graphic novel by Brian Lee O'Malley. His eyes are a calm sea she could fall into and never want to breach the surface again. They look at her with the power to make her feel whole. His smile shapes the words he speaks into music that reverberates in the soul she thought was missing. His warm hand runs through her hair, and for the first time in her life she's glad of its length and shine. It's something they can share. Something she can add to the perfection embodied in the man opposite her. It's even better knowing that that's not why he cares for her. He fell for her before they even met, as she fell for him. But now she cannot disconnect from the melody of his words. How can she ever go back home? What is she outside of this moment? I love you. The words force themselves from her lips without consulting her brain. As they wash over him, the sea in his eyes begins to roil. He speaks as a shrieking symphony. Didn't you read my letter? His dark eyes spill out into the world and she is lost in the waves, gasping for breath, her lungs filling with gulps of her own naivety. A train barrels down on her through the ocean. The world goes black. Raleigh! Ian shouted. This would be a lot easier if you'd get out of the car. Relax, Steph said. She was getting some shut-eye. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'll just, um... Raleigh blinked as her eyes adjusted to the California sun. She unbuckled her seatbelt, which had bit a line into her side, the side of her face as she slept. When she stepped out of the car, she saw Dan smoking a cigarette as he considered an X-shaped wrench. He offered her a smoke when she caught his eye, which Steph was quick to take and light for herself. You must have been having a nice dream not to wake up when we got that flat. Stuck on that guy again? Something stills, right? Stilson? Hmm. Stillman, <laughs> Raleigh said. Wish he was driving instead of Ian. That flat scared me half to death, and his shouting brought me another quarter of the way. Smoke? You don't even know him. The way you look off when you talk about him tells me he's not the yelling type. Not in front of Raleigh! Mom's yells are as loud as Dad's, if only a higher pitch. Sweetheart, you should go to your room. Why should she be punished because you can't control your temper? Oh, she's the one being punished? Dad's baritone echoes through the house. The angry duet continues. She's halfway up the stairs before they notice she's gone. The next call is loud, but only so it will reach her. The sharp edges have been rounded off by exhaustion. We're sorry, sweetie. Please come back down. We'll go to dinner. She hesitates on the staircase. Dinner in public just means quiet arguments. Where's the nearest diner? Ian asked. Changing a tire is hungry work. Raleigh didn't even remember getting back in the car, so she was glad she wasn't the one navigating. There's a town about a thumb down the road. Cottonville, <laughs> Dave said, running his hand over the map. And how far is that? Ian said. His voice cracked a little as he tried to control it. Dave placed his thumb on the map's key. Looks like about 50 miles or kilometers, same idea. They're not the same. <laughs> Steph, will you take a look at the map? She's sleeping, Raleigh said, quietly. She noticed that Steph had fallen asleep on her shoulder. She wasn't used to anyone being that comfortable around her, and she didn't make an effort to extricate herself. She actually felt protective, in a way. Great, Ian said. Well, can you... Cottonville is 32 miles from here. How did you know that? She said she's done this drive before plenty of times, Dave said. He rolled down the window and lit a cigarette. So what? She knows the distance to every town from every place along the path? 
Dave took a long, thoughtful drag before saying, Obviously. (laughs) There was a sign while you were fighting, Raleigh said. She wasn't sure if they heard her. Well, what music do you have, Ian asked. I've got some plum tree, Dave said, and he loaded (laughs) up the CD. This CD is going to change your life. Mr. O'Malley is so excited that she doesn't bring up the question of if you can really call it a life without a soul. America Online? She examines the disc. Will this work in Canada? (laughs) O'Malley snatches the disc back from her. It's the World Wide Web, Raleigh. Worldwide! Canada is part of the world. (laughs) Why is this going to change my life? You're smarter than everyone else in this place, kiddo. You need access to more information than the school can give you day to day. You take this home and you learn. Raleigh takes the CD back from Mr. O'Malley. It feels heavier now. What can I learn about? Math, science, music, arts, you name it. Just don't talk to any boys online. I could lose my license. <laughs> Who proudly displays a C-plus food inspector placard on their restaurant? Ian asked. The question was an open inquiry. But Raleigh noticed it was accompanied by a sidelong glance at Dave, who had picked up the place. Who had picked the place. A C is a pass? They're licensed to operate, Steph said. Yeah, but how can they lose so many points in a town this small? Why don't you ask them, Dave said. Ooh, maybe it's a C for cats. We can find your soul, Rawls. (laughs) Steph was much more enthusiastic after her her nap. Nothing could face her when she was at 100%. Maybe it's a C because they serve cats, Ian said. Hmm. But he opened the door and let Raleigh, Steph, and Dave walk through. Well, this is spooky, Raleigh said. The diner looked identical to the one they had visited when they had had car troubles a couple days ago. The air smelled of the same grease, the floor had the same stained checkered black and white tiles, the bar had the same brash finishes, and the same red vinyl had the same yellow stuffing poking through its cracks in the same booths. Hmm. There were pictures on the wall, but Raleigh was afraid to see if they were the same as well. Could this have been the diner where she lost her soul? Yeah, creepy, Steph said with a bright smile. (laughs) It's like every diner exterior leads to the same diner interior. (laughs) Maybe we could use this to get home faster. Do you know any good diners in Vancouver? Um, Steph? Maybe we should just get you some food, Ian said. Oh yeah, that works too. (laughs) They sat at a booth that felt too familiar, and Raleigh tried not to hear her parents arguing from the past. She buried her face in a menu to avoid looking at the photos on the wall, afraid she would see a picture of herself when she was a child, when her parents told her they were getting a divorce, when her mom had sold her daughter's soul for success, and the devil had tied it to a cat, when Mr. O'Malley introduced her to the internet and she felt free for the first time in years. Those were her memories. She owned them. Yet she was afraid they would be as public as if someone had pinned Stillman's letter to the wall. The ocean pulls her deeper, and she sees figures shining in red in the depths. They beckon to her. They reach for her. They... No! No. No, she would not sink into that again. She was here with... Friends? Classmates? Steph said she wanted to be a friend. Steph... Steph was asking her a question. What are you getting, Rawls? Raleigh had never liked nicknames before, but she found herself smiling whenever she heard this one. I want to get whatever you're getting. You always look amazing, and I could stand to lose some weight. I, uh, well, um, I don't know. I don't know that I've ever seen Raleigh eat anything, 
Maybe that's how she's so skinny, Ian said, talking about her like she wasn't even there. They had shared meals before on this trip. Maybe she only eats bread, Dave offered. <laughs> I don't... I just, um... That wouldn't work, Ian said. Why not? Dave asked. <laughs> bread makes you fat. <laughs> Yay! The figures grow larger as she plummets into the deep sea. Contorted marionettes of her parents, her teacher, and now her companions with joints and eyes made of fiery light jeer at her. A voice cuts through the water as a red dot appears below her. It beckons her as it grows larger, though she cannot make out its shape. You're fat and worthless. Why would I ever come back to you? You think you're smart, but you can't even speak. Your parents don't love you. You can't tell the people you're with were never your friends. The boy won't want you. You'll die alone and without me. She recognizes her soul, shaped as a cat made of flames, just as she recognizes that what it's saying is true. She is worthless. She was foolish to think she had friends, foolish to think Stilson could love her. She may never see those eyes again, but if she makes it out, she'll burn his letter. She'll change her number and steal her one good memory of him. With his words of fire, he'll never be able to take them back. Earth to Rawls! Come back, Rawls! Steph's voice, her real voice, brought Raleigh back into the diner. She couldn't find any words to speak, but Steph had plenty. I found another photo of you on the wall! How weird is that? Look! Mm. Raleigh didn't want to look. She stood up and rushed outside. She didn't want to be around any of these people anymore. She felt like a fool. She'd find her own way home. She always had. When she looked around, she realized that Cottonville wasn't the height of civilization. She wondered if there would even be an encyclopedia entry on the town. She grabbed her bag from the trunk, then walked down a gravel path away from their car. The moon lit the way enough for her not to trip. The sound of her feet dragging on the ground pierced the crisp air as she walked. Suddenly, she saw a figure running along a wooden fence in front of her. A black cat silhouetted in moonlight. It stopped, and so did she. The scraping of the gravel did not. You okay, Rawls? It was Steph's voice. But Raleigh didn't turn around to look at her. It's Raleigh. Oh, right. Sorry, Steph said. Do you have your lighter? You don't smoke. Do you have it? Raleigh said again. Yeah, here you go, um, Raleigh, Steph said. And she placed the lighter in Raleigh's hand. Raleigh took it without a word and opened her bag to find the letter. She pulled it free and ignited the lighter. She was going to burn all ties to Stillman so he couldn't ruin the good memories like her friends had. He couldn't betray her like her parents. But as she moved the flame towards the envelope, she hesitated. Something wasn't right. The silence. Aren't you going to ask me what I'm doing? Raleigh asked, still not meeting Steph's eyes. I wasn't planning on it. Well, aren't you curious as to why I'm burning a letter? Sure I am. So, why aren't you going to ask me about it? Because it's clearly important to you. And if you wanted me to know, you'd tell me. It's the same reason I haven't asked about why you missed your train. You're never late for anything. Oh, Raleigh said. She looked at the lighter and the letter, then let the flame die. There were tears in her eyes when she turned back to Steph. Thanks. Anytime, Raleigh, Steph said. What are friends for? Steph, Raleigh said. Yeah? Can you call me Rawls? (laughs) 
The figures of flame shrink away as she rises to the surface. The last she sees of them is the smoke as they're extinguished. The cat has no voice, no power as she ascends. She breaks into the open air and finds his eyes staring at her once more. His beautiful eyes that had prevented her from seeing anything else around her. They're still beautiful, but now that she is seen beneath them, she knows that they are flawed as well. She pulls her gaze away and smiles at the wall. What are you smiling at? His voice has a subtle harmony once more. Don't you recognize anyone in these pictures? He turns, and his eyes pour over the diner's photo wall. They land on a Polaroid of four kids from Vancouver. I recognize one beautiful girl there, but who are the others? She smiles and feels the music come out of her own lips. My friends. The end. Hmm. From episode 49, Eric writes Hamilton, based on the musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Mr. Reed Reimer, why don't you drop that beat? What? What? Yep. This is happening. You ready for this? Oh my gosh. Now gather some writers and listeners all As I lay down the tale from a midsummer's fall Twas the 4th of July, 1784 The commander-in-chief had just won the war So round the old general they gathered en masse To hear the man's words and to kiss his great ass. The venue, Mount Vernon, the mood ostentatious The land was now free and its hero, libatious Thank y'all for coming, said Washington then And thank God for giving me such thirsty friends You're all of you welcome to drink of my beer. Oh shit, I just spilled right down Martha's brassiere. The crowd had a laugh as the hostess dried off, and Washington's manservants went for a mop. But then there was one guest who didn't find glee at the plight of a wife as embarrassed as she. They point and they laughed at Eliza enraged. No wonder they also would sully my name. They tell me my husband is sly and untrue, and to make matters worse, they say he fucked you. Angelica smiled with a hand on her heart, and said my dear sister, but I've played no part. Your husband is charming and sly, I agree, but I swear on my life that he never touched me. Eliza just laughed, though inside she had fright. Where had her dear husband been this past night? There were rumors abound in the Washington house. Could she not trust her sister alone with her spouse? Perhaps you should ask him, oh sister of mine. Angelica sneered through a third glass of wine. The younger just huffed and said, that's what I'll do. While the elder kept drinking, and Peggy did. Too. At that same moment, five tables away, our favourite hero of Yorktown, Elsway, over Mulligan, Lafayette, and John Lorenz are telling them tales from before they were friends. You see, I was drunk when I penned that damn letter. He said with a grin, so I swore I'd do better. We know this old yawn, they all said at once. Well, too fucking bad, you dried up old cunts. A mine is an immigrant song through and through, inspiring and sexy and sorted and true. To New York, I say. The shirt on my back And I met a fine lady Who had a fine rack We swore that we'd marry But it wasn't to be For Washington needed the ham Obviously The four of them chuckled And toasted King George Not he of the throne But of Valley Forge And what is this lady? The marquis then asked Who is this mystery love From the past? All you Frenchmen are hopeless Said Mulligan next Could you please do one thing Besides think about sex? Go rinse and cut in With your one to talk? But honestly, Ham, did she play with your cock? 
Oh, that would be talent, I'm said to his mug. But suffice it to say, I've still got the bug. But Eliza was near and she'd heard his whole song. And to her it appeared she'd been right all along. Angelica's rack is much finer than mine. She thought to herself, and I know that she pines for my husband despite what she says to my face. And so she began to put ham in his place. How dare you, she said to her husband right there. And Hamilton startled fell out of his chair. Allow me to spoil the mystery for you, she said to the stack jawed and silent ham crew. My husband's true love is a girl you all know. I mean my dear sister, that home wrecking hoe. But Hamilton jumped to his feet and exclaimed to the crowd that had gathered that he had been framed. Would never do such an ill thing to my wife as sleep with her sister, I swear on my life. Angelica chimed in right then with it's true. He's not broken his vows though I wish he would do. Then tell me, Eliza said feeling contrite, why was my husband not with me last night? But before Alexander could utter a thing, the general sauntered right into the ring. What's happening here? He demanded to know. And what, dear Eliza, is wrong with your bow? A moment of silence fell over the crowd, and one young man saw here a chance for renown. He stood up and said, Sir, the truth is revealed that Hamilton is an adulterous heel. Washington gasped and said, Who will concur? Don't trust him, said Ham. That's my foe, Aaron Burr. He'd love to accuse me of any old fault, so please take his jabs with a fair pinch of salt. Are you telling me then that his claim is untrue? A general asked as he finished his brew. Untrue is a mighty ambiguous word, said Ham with a tone that was far from assured. I, I mean, what is truth? Could we even agree? If Burr said a half-truth, how wrong would he be? Besides, what does Mr. Burr know of my life? And why is he telling these tales to my wife? But for poor Eliza, this wasn't enough. Why wasn't Hamilton calling Burr's bluff? You say that Angelica hasn't been yours, she began. But perhaps you've been out with the horse? I'm afraid not, the ham started to say. But then sucked on his teeth in a guiltyish way. This isn't the time or the place, urged Lorenz. And Marky and Mulligan nodded their heads. And for Alexander now caught in a bind between saving face or else losing his pride. The decision he made seemed to all quite uncouth, but for him the only defense was the truth. I'm sorry, said Hamilton there in that house. I admit that I'm not the world's faithfulest spouse. I've had some transgressions upon which to draw, but not with the whores nor my sister-in-law. Uh, he turned from the host to his wife now in tears, and he smiled at his bros as they fumbled their beers. The facts of my whereabouts yesterday eve can be proved by my drinking pals given their leave. Then Hercules Mulligan stood and exclaimed, for the love of God, man, will you leave out our names? But Fuller Ham just ignored his friend's desperate plea and proceeded to tell it all quite faithfully. So Mulligan, Lafayette, Lawrence, and I decided last night to get fucked up and high. It started in town with a pint and some weed, but then we addressed our more primitive needs. We ended up stumbling out to an old shed, wherein all us four became an octoped. I should have sent word to you, Liza, my dear, but then Mulligan stuck his tongue into my ear. And despite all the protests from everyone present, the Hamilton orated every unpleasant indulgence that four men could possibly share, including them tying Lorenz to a chair and teasing his nips with the wax from a candle before taking turns with a lubed up broom handle. A Washington laughed at this sordid affair, though we know that the man fucked the shit out of bears. The story went on and the crowd was enthralled with every creative new use of men's balls and throwing the hotel for Eliza 
Spencer was shocked. She gasped when he said how he whipped out his cock and used it to slap Lafayette across the face. And Washington said, why the fuck would you place two perfectly good French baguettes in your bum? To which he replied, well, it's better than one. It seemed that the love must have gone on for hours. No details were spared of the flesh he deflowered. So everyone there at Mount Vernon that day were treated to Hamilton's kinky foray into loving three men with some questionable props that included, of course, the most phallic of crops, five cucumbers, some parsnips, a carrot, and more were used until all of them came on the floor. That's it, then said the God's honest truth. You can ask my three lovers if you need more proof. And when he was done speaking, Eliza had found she was almost impressed by her husband's profound dedication to showing his friends that he cared. But mostly she wished that he hadn't have shared the whole story with everyone she'd ever met. So she said, you can fuck them, but I'm gonna jet. At that point, all the guests took to the road, having learned a few things about Hamilton's show. Yet for the Ham crew, there was nothing to say. They just finished their drinks and they went on their way. But for young Aaron Burr, who had been proven right about his derival's adulterous night, he felt no victorious reason to shout, just jealousy at having been so left out. And finally, George took his friend by the hand and he said some last words to our favourite Ham. Oh, Hamilton, you're of a most special breed who would cut off his hand just to prove that he bleeds. No one man can tell you your word isn't suit, for who else would admit that they did those weird moves? Twas a hell of a story. Of that I've no doubt you sure know how to party, but get the fuck out. (laughs) (laughs) From episode 50, Andrew writes Spider-Ham, based on the Marvel comic book created by Tom DeFalco and Mark Armstrong. Here we go. It's a friendly, friendly neighborhood spider ham. It's a friendly, friendly neighborhood spider ham. It's a friendly neighborhood spider ham. Straight out of the sky and up into the sky. The boss got a new hero. He moves place to place. He wears a mask. He's can't see his face. Except that snap, it sticks out, yeah, you see it, little stumpy flat knows how you know he can't be beaten. Goes out on the town, off the ground, he's swinging around, web shoe, graceful move. You never seen a hockey where he going any sooner. And where is that? Where it's at? Where it's going down? Where the villain's prowl, that's where he's at. To fight the crime and evil play in the city. To prove his uncle's point with stunning agility. That with great power, oh, comes great responsibility. It's a friendly, friendly neighborhood spider ham. It's a friendly, friendly neighborhood spider ham. It's a friendly neighborhood spider ham. Straight out of the stock and up into the sky. Uh oh, your villains, watch how he goes. Up the wall and nothing but his fingers and his toes. Dexterous, quick of action, quick of wit. Dropping one liners as he roasts you on his spit. A sizzle, sizzle with a little saucy drizzle. A delicious diss on his lips for your criminals. Go ahead, take a breath, huff and puff. But the gust you must, it just won't be enough. He ain't straw a stick. This pig's a brick house. He's a glutton of justice in any amount. So take him out, baddies, anywhere. Nothing classy. Just set up your asses with a side of sweet and sassy. <laughs> It's 
Porker, age 16, isn't like most boys his age. Surely only a year ago he was just an ordinary orphan spider spinning webs in the alleys of New Pork City without rhyme or reason. But then, after being bitten by his adoptive aunt and known man scientist May Porker, Peter changed into the most heroic of all God's creatures, a pig. Now with the body of a champion, Peter dons a flattering suit and uses his stunning spider-like abilities to protect the citizens of New Pork as the Amazing Spider-Ham. <laughs> we join our hero as he hurriedly swings through the queen across the Queen's Bee Bridge. He's already had a full <laughs> night of crime fighting, apprehending two armed robbers, a kidnapper, and a serial flasher. The first three were standard for the web slinger, but that last pervert, a horse of a different color by the name of Leslie Mason, had been quite a handful. More like two, Spidey thinks before the more pressing issue pops back into his mind. Golly gee, I'm so late for my date with Mary Jane, and she had something extra special planned for tonight. Our hero releases his web at the peak of a swing. Zoom! He launches off the bridge and falls down, 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 before his next web catches a building on the other side. With a whoosh of the brisk night air, our ham begins to swing over the streets of Astorkia as onlookers look on in awe. But then, a sensation. Bzz, bzz, bzz. The web slinger perks up. My spider sense is tingling. Oh, no, not now. What could it be? <laughs> Spidey looks around. Nothing seems out of the ordinary until there. He, spites, he spots two suspicious silhouettes through the curtains of an open second-story window just ahead. I better check it out. Aw, shucks. Mary Jane's gonna roast me for sure. <laughs> With a signature snort, our hero shoots ahead, led by his superior senses. Through that open window, a cool breeze blows into the bedroom of local youth Billy Goderberg, age 17, star of his local high school lacrosse team. Billy is sitting on his bed opposite the window, next to his sweetheart, all pork, or new pork, all state synchronized swimming medalist 1963, Miss Pinchy Lobsterson, also age 17. Burr, Billy, close that window, I'll catch my death. Sure thing, babe. We don't want anyone seeing us anyway. Why don't these two typically upstanding adolescents want to be seen? Oh, maybe because we've joined them in the midst of some frisky business. As he closes the window and draws the blinds, the shirtless Billy Goat Boy turns to his lingerie-clad crustacean companion with lustful eyes. Wow, Pinchy, you absolutely shine in this light. The girl snaps a playful claw at the boy. Billy Goderberg, are you trying to butter me up? <laughs> it's the truth, baby. I know. I polished my exoskeleton for this. <laughs> Billy's jaw drops. Hubba, hubba. <laughs> in an impressive display of his athleticism and youthful vigor, Billy leaps across the room in a single bound, and the two begin what could possibly be described as heavy petting. The act involves hands and claws and horns and antennae. To be honest, I'm not sure how to describe it. If only a hero could put a stop to this sinful ritual. But wait, that's right! 
Smash! The window shatters and the indecent adolescents recoil as shards of glass litter the room. A web follows in the wake of the chaos and with it, its wielder. The frightened fondlers shout his name in unison. Spider Ham! Yes, indeed, our ham affirms. And I'm here to... Holy hash browns! What are you two doing? The haze of his most excellent entrance fades, and Spidey takes in the scene. The two teens in each other's arms slash claws, in a state of undress, on the boy's bed. He also notes the posters of himself and some of your other favorite Marvel heroes adorning the walls, including Iron, Man- Iron Mantis, Mr. Fantastic Fox, and Miss Marvelephant. Find all their latest issues at your local comic book store. Billy throws up his hands. We weren't doing anything, Spider-Ham. Pinchy does the same. It isn't what it looks like. Isn't what it looks like, Spidey retorts. It looks like the two of you were about to make some, some whoopee. <laughs> Billy pushes Pinchy away. No, we weren't. Then why is your gal wearing only her, her brazier? Our hero <laughs> punctuates his query with a dramatic point at the cups in question. Pinchy gasps and crosses her claws to cover herself. Her antennae flutter in frustration as she glances between her guy and our ham. Fine, you caught us, but what's the big deal? She elbows Billy. Bah, yeah, what's the big deal? Spidey shakes his head. These tawdry teens, he muses, they just don't get it. You just don't get it, Spidey exclaims. <laughs> Whoopi isn't all butter and soda crackers. There are consequences. Pinchy Lobsterson, you should know that more than any. Oh, yeah? And why is that? Spidey's palm makes contact with his face. Ah, oh, heck, why am I always the one who has to explain this stuff? <laughs> oh, Spidey, that's just how it goes. With great power comes, well, you know. <laughs> explain what stuff? Pinchy presses as Billy blinks absently. Spidey sighs before continuing. Whoopee, I mean sexual intercourse, <laughs> is our means of reproduction. Pinchy, how do you expect to be New Pork Allstate Synchronized Swimming Medalist 1964 if you're pregnant with Billy's kid during swimming season? <laughs> Pinchy scoffs. Who do you think I am, some skimpy brain shrimp? Dadoy, we were going to use contraception. <laughs> <laughs> Pinchy elbows Billy. Bah, yeah. Billy reaches into his pocket and produces a pristine foil-wrapped condom, specifically the battering ram model, lubricated and hard-tipped to help you breach the gates of ultimate pleasure. Created by America's most trusted brand, Trojan Horse Condoms, available, available now at Narwhal Greens. Spidey shakes a heroic finger at the misguided youths. Condoms aren't 100% effective, you guys. Abstinence is the only surefire way to prevent pregnancy. <laughs> Footnote, our sponsors, Trojan Horse Condoms, begrudgingly endorse this message. But Spider-Ham, Pinchy pleads, I love Billy. We've been dating since the beginning of the school year, and I need to express those emotions physically. Billy nods vigorously in agreement. Yeah, she gives me b-b-boners. Yikes, <laughs> we didn't need to know that. Yeah, I didn't need to know that, Arham agrees. But there are alternatives to sexual intercourse that satisfy those sinister urges. Put those hands and claws to work, both on yourselves and each other. Pinchy's beady eyes briefly study her claws before she snaps them angrily at Spidey. Don't be such a prude, Spider-Ham. You mean to tell me that in all the year you've been dating, you've never gotten past first base with Mary Jane? 
Uh-oh, Spidey thinks. That's right, Mary Jane. I'm late, he exclaims with a signature snort. Are we good here? Pinchy's antennae flutter in frustration. No, we're not. She elbows Billy, who's been staring blankly at his hands for the last 30 seconds. Buh, no, we're not. Um, what am I supposed to do with these? Ah, cheese weeds, our ham size. Guess we'll have to do this the hard way. With a flick of his wrist, our hero shoots and lands a well-placed web on a small foil wrapped target, the Trojan horse brand condom in Billy's hands. I'll take that, he says as he pulls the web back, catches the condom in his other hand, and slides it into a pocket with one smooth motion. Wow, Billy says, stunned by the stunning display of our hero's abilities. Spidey then aims a wrist at both him and his crabby companion. What are you doing? Pinchy protests. Think of it as a safe alternative, Spider-Ham says with a wink. Moments later, our hero swings out of Billy Goderberg's bedroom window, leaving behind two bewildered and sexually unfulfilled, but safe, teenagers bound in his webs. High over the streets of Queensby, our hero soars towards his lady love's abode with such amazing speed you'd think the green gibbon were tied on his twirly tail. But mere minutes after preventing a potential teenage pregnancy, Spider-Ham swings down and lands gracefully upon the windowsill of his night's final destination. And for the second time that evening, he's met with a scandalous sight. Mary Jane? He exclaims. And sure enough, Spider-Ham's true love, the one and only Mary Jane Walrus, is lying most invitingly on her scarlet comforted bed. The lights are low and smooth jazz croons in the background. Hey, Spider-Hunk. Mary Jane replies. The words draw our hero's gaze beneath her whiskered lips to her defining features. Mary Jane are those... Tusk garters? <laughs> you betcha, boy. You likey. D-d-do I? <laughs> Spidey stutters with excitement, letting out a signature snort. Good, Mary Jane. <laughs> Good, Mary Jane replies. I got the idea from a friend. With a flutter of her long lashes, Mary Jane glances to the bedroom door, where a new figure appears, and wowee, what a figure it is. Spider-Ham's jaw drops. Black Catapus? <laughs> Indeed, the very same. Hey, Web-Slinger. Black Catapus purrs. She's quite a sight, with her glossy black leather bodysuit hugging every curve and tentacle. Back at the bed, Mary Jane runs a hand down one of her gartered tusks. I wanted tonight to be special. It needs to go just right. So I thought I'd invite someone with more experience. The sexy cephalopod flourishes her ample appendages. Happy to lend a hand. Then her eyes dart down to Arham's flattering pants. Well, well, is that a condom perfectly outlined in your pocket, Spidey? How thoughtful. I hope it's a Trojan horse. There's no brand more dependable. She winks. What a, seriously, folks, what a gal. So, so, Peter. Mary Jane begins. What is, what's your move? Our hero gulps deeply. Only a silent squeal escapes him. For the first time that night... The amazing Spider-Ham is at a loss for words.
Will Spidey go through with it? Will his wildest <laughs> fantasies and those of our overwhelmingly male audience between the ages of 15 and 45 come true? Or will he follow his own advice and abstain from these most devilish delights? Find out in the next exciting issue of America's favorite comic hero, <laughs> The Amazing Spider-Man! <laughs> from episode 51, Marcus writes Mad Men, based on the television series created by Matthew Weiner. You take what you want. She moaned as the physical expression of his sentiment pushed her further up Don Draper's desk. That's why we're here. You want me? Her voice quavered. She was still unsure despite being spread across the old mahogany. But this wasn't about her. Pay attention, Don said. That's why we're all here. Men take what they want. It's as simple as that. Whether they can afford it or not. My job is to tell them what they want, and they'll do the rest. Mr. Jacobson's secretary didn't have a response to that, which was just as well. Don was done talking. When he finished, he poured himself a drink as she dressed. Send Peggy in on your way out. Don, this was really... I don't normally... She's just outside my door. The only one not dressed as an adult. He went about straightening the things that had been pushed aside on his desk. The secretary, Linda maybe, pulled herself up to her full height and smoothed out the wrinkles in her blouse. Right. Mr. Jacobson will see you for your brief this afternoon. Will that be all? Don glanced up from his work. Excuse me? Her flush didn't set him off this time. It wasn't a mark of attraction. Besides, now that he'd had her... She turned on her cheap heel and left. Don took a sip of his cocktail and leaned back in his chair. There were tears in the corner of the girl's eyes as she struggled to maintain composure. They were a better indicator that Peggy needed to see Don than her actual words, so she sent the girl on her way and walked into her boss's office. The smell of sex, liquor, and cigarettes was overpowering. The smell Mm. of Don Draper. Mm. Characteristically, he didn't wait for Peggy to speak. Did you finish those notes on the client strategy? Peggy blushed slightly. She hated when she did that in front of him. Yes, Mr. Draper. Well, where are they? For a moment, she was frozen by his demanding, inviting eyes. Then she blushed harder, knowing what she had to do. Peggy walked up to Don's desk and pulled the blue folder out of a stack that had just been rearranged. She handed it to him without comment. He looked through the notes silently for a minute before finally looking at Peggy. You did this yesterday, did you? I finished it yesterday, but a client like Kraft takes more than just a... It's good work. Peggy blinked. Her lips stuck together. I want you in our pitch session today. I'm sure Mr. Jacobson's secretary can share the minutes. You don't need two women. I know what Mr. Jacobson's secretary can do. Lord, he was shameless. I want you there. Is that a problem? No, Mr. Draper, Peggy said. Will that be all? Do you want me to put together a board for your presentation? Nothing specific. Just show them where their product is today, Don said. He'd stopped looking at her and returned to looking past her, as he did with anything that wasn't what he wanted at the moment. He picked up his drink, and Peggy knew her cue to leave. Yes, Mr. Draper, she said. Sleeping wasn't the worst thing Don had done in his office. Hell, it wasn't even the worst thing he had done that day. Depending on who was waking him up with that pounding on his door, it would be nothing compared to murder. His eyes focused through the throbbing of his hangover. Come in. Pete Campbell's smug face appeared in the doorway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Slowing down, Donnie. Never thought you'd be the type to take a cat nap at the office. 
But then I saw <laughs> Jacobson's piece of ass blasting out of here earlier, so maybe you've been busy. Oh, God. Oh. I was thinking, Don said. And he decided he was too off balance to kill Pete today. Besides, he can never stand to let that shit feel so important. That's good. Because old Roger would toss your ass out the window if you lost craft. Do you know how long they've been with Sterling Cooper? I do. Geezer won't shut up about it. Back in the war, you could get two craft dinners for one food ration stamp. Christ. <laughs> it's like he thinks they're Jesus for selling cheese with noodles. How can I help you, Pete? Pete walked over to the window and opened the blinds. You know they're painting over that mural in the Empire State Building? The one on the ceiling with all the circles. Maybe we could ask them to paint it blue and call it a day. Pete, <laughs> why are you here? Oh, Roger sent me in. The pitch meeting started five minutes ago. Thought you should know. Pete stared at Don, expecting him to rise to the bait. But he didn't know Don Draper. The anger cooled and formed into purpose as Don stood and grabbed the blue folder off his desk. Lead the way. Peggy took down the names of everyone in the meeting room. This took about a minute. It turned out Mr. Jacobson's secretary was named Lynette. She counted the seconds. The craft people weren't talking as they waited through Mr. Sterling's attempts to break the tension. It was his account, yes, but everyone in the room knew they were only here for Peggy's boss, the man who always won the day. Don Draper. If he'd only take a minute away from his women and booze to think about the problem. Kraft General Foods was a huge business. Peggy knew. She had done the research. They had the budget to expand their marketing across all 48 states. 50 states. That would take some getting used to. <laughs> they were going to be spending to win, and they would do that with whatever firm gave them that victory. Contracts be damned. After what felt like ages, victory arrived. Don had no clue what he was going to pitch. He just knew that he wanted to win, and Don Draper took what he wanted. By making Pete walk ahead of him, Pete was stuck holding the door, allowing Don to make his big entrance. How long have you gentlemen been waiting? Peggy, I'm sure you've kept track of the time. Peggy didn't hesitate. She was getting better at this. Seven minutes and 43 seconds, she said. That was too specific, but Don smiled at her and didn't break his stride. Less than ten minutes, and I bet you were about ready to walk. I know I would be if I had to listen to Roger's stories for that long. The room laughed. <laughs> Roger loudest of all. He knew he was saved. So, why did I keep you waiting? Is Sterling Cooper known for keeping people waiting? No. But you are. Or were. Back in World War II, America rationed its supplies at home to give our boys across the sea a fighting chance. People lined up and waited to get their craft dinners because they were delicious, simple, and you could get two boxes for one ration stamp, Roger chimed in. <laughs> Thank you, Roger, Don said, smiling. And you could get two boxes for one ration stamp. So, why are you here? Because your biggest innovation in the past decade was changing your boxes from yellow to blue. He walked over to the easel Peggy had set up with an image of Kraft's signature macaroni and cheese. Now, don't mistake me. It's a good-looking box. But is it something you'd be willing to wait for? Think of how those seven minutes felt, and ask yourself if you'd be willing to fill that way to eat your own product. In other words, how much do you want it? He had them. The people from Kraft were leaning in. Mr. Jacobson was counting their increased revenue in his eyes and planning for a new summer home. Even Pete had <laughs> lost his disbelief. This was what Don lived for. He was the best, but being the best hadn't been good enough for a long time. 
He needed to prove that he'd still be on top no matter what the circumstances. He liked to go in blind and create a campaign that lesser men would kill to have come up with through months of work. He had them. Now all he had to do was reach into the air and bring it home. They'd buy anything. He just... He had nothing. (laughs) The smile was still there, but Peggy knew something was wrong. She had spent enough time working for Don that she could tell this wasn't normal showmanship. He was blank. The day had finally caught up to him, and he was terrified. She made her choice in an instant. Her preparation had been thorough. She had always wanted to be in the business, and unless she did something big, she would never be anything more than a secretary, whose name men like Don Draper forgot. Mm. You don't want it, Peggy said. Her voice was soft at first, but hardened as she cut through the first signs of protest from Mr. Sterling. The reason that you're uncomfortable waiting for our firm's pitch, and even more uncomfortable with the idea of waiting for your dinner, is that you shouldn't have to. During wartime, men didn't wait to get your product. Women did. The men were out on the front saving lives. Today, it's the same. Women buy craft dinner so the men and their families don't have to wait. You're targeting the wrong audience. The room was silent. Don regained his composure so fast that he was sure Peggy was the only person who had ever known it left him. (laughs) Exactly, he said. And the men sighed in relief with the knowledge that Peggy had his approval to speak. You may have been wondering why I invited Peggy here today, when I knew Linda was so capable. Lynette, (laughs) the secretary whispered. (laughs) I thought it would be best if you heard my strategy from the target audience herself. Now, what Sterling Cooper is proposing, my strategy. The words rung in Peggy's ears until she could hear nothing else. Don was still talking, but her pen made no notes. He had been clueless and unprepared, and it took him all of 15 seconds to steal her big moment. The instant he had started talking, all eyes in the room moved back to him. She was forgotten, dismissed. Like everything in the world, Don Draper had seen what he wanted and took it. And Peggy? Well, she would have (laughs) to wait. The end. Wow. And that is it. That's the end of Sham Fiction Just the Fix Volume 4, and therefore, the end of Season 1 of Sham Fiction. We'll be back. I guarantee it. And to make sure that you're here when it happens, I recommend that you head over to Twitter, follow us at Sham Fiction, and if you haven't yet, subscribe to the podcast, you know, at whatever podcatcher you're currently using to listen to this show. Just, you know, hit subscribe. Sham Fiction is brought to you by myself, Eric Carlson, and the other two hosts who are Marcus Mann and Andrew Neal. You also heard quite a bit of music from Reed Reimer, so thanks to him. Yeah, and if Marcus were in the room with me right now, he'd want you to know that you can't beat the dredge. They're pure energy. And that's all I got. And we'll see you next time on Sham Fiction. <laughs>